0: Light in the darkness, that's the um, theme from Isaiah chapter 9 for this second Sunday in Advent. John Stott, that's maybe a name that, that some of you will know, John Stott was uh, for many years the uh, minister at All Souls Langham Place in London. And as well as being minister of that congregation, he was a well-known Uh, Bible scholar and preacher, died in 2011, I think. Um, And he used to say that the the task of preaching was to take the ancient word and the modern world and bring them together. So what the, the preacher has to do is to be a student uh, both of the text, that's the ancient word, and of the times, <laughs> not the newspaper, um, but the, the culture and the, the circumstances in which we, we live now, and to bring those two together. And one of the, the ways of, of doing that is to ask two questions... The first question is, what did it mean to them? And the second question is, what does it mean to us? Now, what did it mean in 8th century BC for Isaiah's hearers? And I want to try and bring it as, as grounded, as up-to-date as I can in terms of what does it mean for us um, in the 21st century in uh, Iscobride, in our part of the world? So, what did it mean to them? I'll explain the part one as we go on. <laughs> these, uh, they're very ancient words, these words of Isaiah, the 8th century BC. That's, uh, that's about the time of the Iron Age in Britain. We're dealing with something that, that's, that's very ancient. And in fact, I want to go back um, 200 years before Isaiah to this. Um, this is the, um, I love maps, like maps? <laughs> I've going to get as many as I can in today. Um, they, uh, it's a map of the division of the, the Jewish uh, Hebrew kingdom into two, which had happened about around uh, about six, um, 10th century BC. And the green bed is the northern kingdom which was Israel and was the bigger chunk of land, you can't see it all there. And the southern kingdom uh, of Judah is the smaller kingdom. And one of the key things here is that Jerusalem, the ancient capital of the United Kingdom, is in the southern part of that division. And there was great rivalry and jealousy between the, the two uh, kingdoms of uh, Israel and Judah. And so one of the things that happened was that they, um, the, the kings of, of um, Israel didn't want their citizens going south to Jerusalem to worship. Um, of course, worship at the Jerusalem temple it, is for the center, particularly for Old Testament Jews, of, of, of sacrifice. And the whole thing was centered in, um, in Jerusalem. But they didn't want them going there. So what they did was they built this um, sanctuary at Bethel and the, the kings and the, um, the rulers of the northern kingdom of Israel said, don't go to Jerusalem, just go to Bethel, it's just as good. And in fact, they, the prophets warned again and again and again against the dilution of worship that was going to happen because of that change. And among them were Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and Micah. And they all said, this is not what God requires. This is, is, is making a, a mongrel version of worship. It's bringing in elements that are not what God intended. And if you don't stop this, disaster will come. and it did just about the time that um, Isaiah was speaking these words um, the Assyrian um, empire invaded the Fertile Crescent, this area from the north and of course you can see from that map another map (laughs) um, that Naphtali and Zebulun and Galilee which are the, the places named in that Isaiah 9 passage, they're all in the north of the country and the, the Assyrians came from the north, they, they attacked and destroyed Damascus and then they came south and destroyed the, the northern kingdom of Israel it was more or less wiped off the map And they were brutal invaders. Many were killed. Many were made homeless. Many were taken into exile. And their whole way of life was destroyed. How do you think... That's the background. That's the background to Isaiah's words. This, This was was happening at the time of Isaiah 9. How do you think they felt when they heard these words? The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nations and increased the joy. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. How do you think they, had, they heard those words? I mean, they just. <coughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's how they would have heard them, isn't it? The end in sight, the death, the destruction, the violence, the terror. Have you, probably you've seen, like me, the um, uh, footage of uh, V-Day at the end of World War Two? Have you seen some of that? You know, those crowds in London and all that. I, I think that must have been how they heard it. This is This is going to come to an end, this death and destruction, this invading foreign... Army that's occupied our land have, uh, have had their timing uh, limited. They are not going to be here forever. And there's, there's a powerful, powerful image here, isn't there, of the child born to us, the new start, fresh government. And interestingly, the the traditional interpretation, Jewish interpretation of these verses is actually this is talking about Hezekiah. Hezekiah, who had quite recently become the... Can I go back with these arrows? There we go. Um, Hezekiah had quite recently become the, the king in the, um, the southern kingdom of Judah there, at the age of 25, and he was a, a fresh face on the scene, was Hezekiah, and in fact, if you read the Old Testament accounts of Hezekiah, he became a great reformer. He's one of the few people that the book of Kings said he did a good job, basically, and um, And Hezekiah reformed all of the temple worship, he threw out all of the the stuff that didn't belong there, and he made an enormous difference, like a reformation, really, in the life of of Judah and Jerusalem. And the traditional Jewish interpretation is that this um, passage is about Hezekiah, the king who would come, or was there, in fact, and would reform the worship of the temple. So what did it mean to them? It meant deliverance from the Assyrian invaders. Uh, it meant peaceful rule of the new king, Hezekiah. But that's not, the, that's not the only interpretation that there is even in the Scriptures of what this passage meant. So what did it mean to them part two? <laughs> and the part two is how did, it, how did it sound to the people of Jesus' day and to the early Christian church, to the um, first Christians? How did these passages, what did they mean uh, to them? Well, as the years passed from Isaiah uh, Isaiah's day when the northern kingdom was destroyed, then the southern kingdom actually in the end under the Babylonian empire was destroyed, they were all taken off in, well many of them were taken off into exile they came back from exile there was a rebuilding of the temple but they, the temple was never what it used to be you know, and it was kind of limped along and national life was at a very low ebb and so in that period of time they started to say These passages, like this one in Isaiah 9, you know what? They actually haven't been fulfilled. There's more here than we have actually seen. And particularly in the the bit about the child that is um, born to us, he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace. There will be no end. Well, Hezekiah had an end. And all of the folks that followed him. And so one of the things that happened over this period of time was this idea of a Messiah, a messianic hope, something that would actually fulfill all of these quite extreme prophecies from Isaiah and from other places. That began to grow. And of course... for for the first Christians I mean this was absolute clincher isn't it I mean how can you read this uh, this stuff I mean uh, where are we for to us a child is born to us a son is given the government will be on his shoulders who will be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and peace who's that about It's about the Incarnation, isn't it? And how did, how did these people hear this? Um, they, they heard it as a, um, an affirmation of a Messianic promise, and for the Christians, the early Christians, this was proof. And there are various places in the Scriptures, actually, Paul talking about, and Berea, you know, showing the people that he was with from the Scriptures that the Christ must come. He would have, I mean, he doesn't say what passages he was reading, but it would have been the passages like this. This is absolutely it. Not Hezekiah, but the Christ child, Jesus of Nazareth. And that interpretation is within our Bibles. You know this, of course. I mean, you, you know that. And uh, Matthew 4, for example, Matthew is describing where Jesus. Um, um, exercised his early ministry you, well you will not I'm going to say do you remember uh, I'll tell you um, it was in the area of Galilee and Zebulon and Naphtali ring any bells? and so what Matthew is doing is he's taking for him what was the ancient word and his modern world and bringing them together and saying, look, here you are. This is what is happening here. So that's what it meant to them. It meant the messianic hope, the gift of the Christ child. But in some ways, you know, um, all of that belongs to the ancient word. Because that's all in our scriptures. This is 2,000 years ago how do we do this thing that John Stott talks about of taking the ancient word and bringing it together with the modern world and seeing how they interact with each other. So, what does it mean to us in our world and our century and our Culture. Of course, we share the um, the interpretation of the of the New Testament, don't we? We share that idea that the the messianic hope was fulfilled in Jesus, and that he's come as God's son into our world. But we need to go further than that, because that is still ancient word, and we're in here. We are in the modern world, and we need to to somehow bring these two things together. The the two really powerful images for me in this passage are the light shining on the people walking in darkness. That's an extraordinarily powerful image. And the second one is of this child. And the, the image of the child for me is about the unexpectedness, the vulnerability, the incongruity of a child being the one who is given in order to set the thing right there's extraordinary power in that let's just think for a moment about the the walking in darkness the um, the long winter days Um. (laughs) they're horrible aren't they sorry no I mean the long winter nights don't I (laughs) yeah the short winter days of the, the northern hemisphere actually make that promise of light quite a sort of visceral thing, don't they? I mean, do you, I don't know about you, but I, I, I always, after the 21st of December, I think, oh, that's it, you know. It's kind of on the way out now. <laughs> it will get... The light will get better. It will get bigger. And that applies to us in our modern world. Here we are in East Kilbride in the um, uh, northern hemisphere, and the light... Begins to increase after um, midwinter. But I think we need to be a bit careful because you see, for both the 8th century BC, Isaiah's hearers, and the 1st century AD, Jesus' people, there was more to the darkness. They were under the boots of a brutal invader. Assyrians in Isaiah's case and Romans in Jesus' case. And in fact, our society on the whole is not dark. Now there are places within it that are dark, quite true. But mostly you and I live in a world of extraordinary privilege and, and wealth and opportunity for us and we have freedoms and so on that the 8th century BC or the 1st century AD would seem like paradise free education universal health care the rule of law political democracy freedom of speech our lives honestly know nothing of brutal political violence do they? That's not the kind of darkness that we live in. So how do we bring this ancient word in our modern world and how do we put those together? Well, one of the things it seems to me that we need to do is is this. We need to take the the principles that apply from the ancient word and, and apply those to our modern world. And if we do that, one of the principles that comes out of this for me is that God knows and cares for those in darkness. We may not be in darkness, but there are people in our world today who are in darkness. And one of the principles is simply this idea of care. It's not a new idea, but it's an incredibly powerful idea. The part of our responsibility is care. I've just finished reading the, of the book, The Beekeeper of Aleppo. Anybody read it? Oh, I'll recommend it to you in that case. Um, it's an extraordinary story. It's written by a woman who worked herself with migrants in Athens, um, in a Christian organization, actually, and she uses her experience of migrants coming from the Middle East through Athens and trying to get to Britain to write this a novel. And it's, it's a good read. But it opens up just the tragedy of what is happening in those places. Men and women and children... Who are desperate, desperate, who are seeing their families destroyed, desperate to leave, and they undertake those journeys that mean child prostitution, rape, exploitation at every turn, in order to try and get what? to get the life that you and I have. That's what they want. Isn't it? How do we, how do we care for people in that kind of darkness? Well, <laughs> I'm not going to try and answer that question, but uh, I mean, I just this is one of the things for me that comes out when we start to think about How do we take this ancient word and our modern world and put those two things together? How do we do that? Of course, the care is one of the the common ones. I mean, the church throughout the ages has done that in all sorts of different ways. Let me just take a couple of things from the second um, image that's that powerful image. It's the child who is born to us. The son is given to us. And as I say, it's just... It's just this idea that, you know... What God gives us is not some kind of seasoned political operator, you know, who's who's cute enough to manipulate the uh, social media in order to find power. It's a child! How, well I was going to say, how useless! (laughs) And in one sense that's what it is, isn't it? And yet this is the gift of God to us with all of the innocence and curiosity and humility that children have you know Gordon preached a couple of weeks ago maybe more than a couple of weeks I can't remember um, about the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, do you remember that? and one of the things that really struck me about that was when Jesus says to Pilate he says to him my kingdom is not of this world if it were my servants would fight. Somewhere in there, this image of the child is about (laughs) non-violence. Not that children are all together non-violent, you understand, but they don't have the kind of, um, you know, forcing others to do things through violence, do they? The adults share and so here's a couple of suggestions in terms that comes out of that ancient word and our modern world coming together climate change isn't it striking how many young people there were at COP26 and how enthusiastic they were and whatever you may think of of Greta Thunberg she's an extraordinary figure isn't she she's 18 now from the age of 15 she lobbied the Scottish Parliament for action on climate change from 15. and her idea of the school climate strike, which some of you may have come across, which became Fridays for the Future and a number of primary schools shut on Fridays in order to allow the children to be understand how important this thing is. Called climate change is. It helped a whole generation of children be alert to that. And crusty old pensioners like me, you know, me, you know, they ought to be in school, oughtn't they? And I have to ask myself, what am I doing? What am I doing to bring? the the principles of this childlike government into contact with my modern experience of climate change? What am I willing to give up if if that ancient word and our modern world are going to come together? And the last one, I'm also a slave to alliteration, um, is culture wars. I heard an, um, a definition of culture wars the other day. It's everything that people shout at each other about on social media. <laughs> but there is a, there's a strong um, thread, isn't there, running through current political discourse, and it's this. The louder I shout, the more true it is. I don't know about you but one of the expressions that seems to me to have crept into political thinking is this expression doubling down. I never knew what that was. Do you know what that is? It's like when you know uh, Boris says we kept all the rules no really we kept all the rules and doubling down seems to me to mean just not having any shame about it at all if I shout louder, then it's going to be truer. How does that sit with unto us is given a child? Unto us a son is born. And the government, Boris, will be upon his shoulders. How does that ancient word about this kind of incongruous gift of a child and the modern world that we live in, with all of those pressures, how do they come together and interact? What practical steps can we be involved in that bring this ancient word and the modern world into contact. These are just a few suggestions. You'll have your own thoughts about that. But it seems to me that that's the task, to bring this ancient word and this modern world into contact so that others might know that unto us the child is given. Let us pray.